Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, joined by my co-host, Henry. And this evening, we are joined by a very special guest, author, lecturer, researcher, and filmmaker, Mr. L.A. Marzulli. L.A., how the heck are you doing this evening? Hey, great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Pleasure is ours, sir. I guess we can get started here. Don't you just take us back in time a bit? And what events or information would you say that you can point to early in life that led you to pursue these hidden histories that's taking you across the globe? That's, that's well put, actually. Very well put. I was a student of the arcane, even like at 13, 14, 15. I was into just anything like esoteric. I remember watching Pat, the Gimli Patterson Bigfoot film. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember it as well. Oh, my well. God, it's real. It's real. <laughs> I saw my first UFO. I've only seen two. But I saw my first UFO when I was 12. And I'll never forget it. I was a Boy Scout camp. And there were four of us. And we were. I could take you to the place. It's still there. And we were walking up this trail taking a shortcut to get back to the camp for lunch boys are hungry we were hopping these rocks walking up this ravine it was like a, a dry creek bed and there's four of us i'm the last boy in the line and the lead guy goes wow what's that and the other two guys go whoa what is that and i go what and they go there and they point i look up it's the classic silver disc i mean the classic silver disc just sitting there no noise the sun glinting off of it we watched it a good 15 or 20 seconds and that thing went like this, straight up and out of sight. You know, I mean, that, that's sort of the big, that was, in some ways, it's the nexus. Because we ran back to camp and we said, we saw a UFO, we saw a UFO. And all the kids gathered around us and the scoutmasters and everybody was listening. And by the evening meal, I remember this is lunch. By the evening meal, the other three boys denied that they had ever seen anything because of the ridicule. I was called UFO boy or some other disparaging name all weekend. I stuck, I stuck, I know what I saw. It was, that was sort of the beginning of it. You know, I'm 12 years and uh, there you go. What was your second time seeing a UFO, if you don't mind me asking? Second time was fairly recently, actually. And the second time, my wife and I go out, it's like probably December, late November, early December. We live in the Santa Monica Mountains and we go to a restaurant that we go to sometimes called Spruzo's. It's right on Pacific Coast Highway. So we go and have a nice Italiano nice Italian dinner and we get back in the car and we're driving she's driving I'm in the drive passenger seat so she goes wow what's that and I go wow what is that oh, it's probably a plane coming in she goes no it's way too low for a plane and it's like right way too low for a plane and it's just sitting there and I keep looking at it and going well it's not moving and we're staring at this thing you remember she's got to drive but we're staring at it for I don't know five six minutes and all of a sudden so here's the light all of a sudden, there's other, this was like a big light. All of a sudden, bam, there's this other light, which appears above it, slowly descends into the big light. The big light explodes in the concentric rings and disappears. And I just go, man, we're not in Kansas anymore. And all of a sudden, bam, the light's back again. We watched this happen three times, pulled over the side of the road. Probably, I don't know, seven years ago, eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that. She would know. Whereabouts was that uh, Boy right Scout? Up, right on Pacific Coast Highway by Zuma Beach, right there. 
I've had similar experiences myself, just seeing lights. I haven't seen a ship like yourself, but I've seen some things similar to your second experience with lights disappearing and appearing in another spot. Yeah, that's always very interesting. I mean, seeing the ship was, that was a different, that's really close encounters of, I mean, it's not the first kind because it's just not a light and it's not really close to be a second kind. So somewhere in between close encounters of the first and second, but it's like, I mean, it was a metallic ship. The sun glinted off of it. It was, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. That was life-changing. Yeah. It's strange that the last couple of months, considering everything that's going on in the United States, but you continue to see these reports coming out about all of this courted, you know, UFO sightings and everything else, and it seems to be increasing every year just exponentially. And some of these agencies... Yeah, I say the CIA, but the Air Force and everything else, they just, they have no explanation. Well, this is, um, I mean, since we're on the topic, we'll just, I'll give you a quick rundown. We are on roughly the sixth rung of the disclosure ladder, the ladder of disclosure, the sixth rung on the disclosure ladder. First rung, 2017, Commander David Fravor on Tucker Carlson's show. Fravor doesn't have a book, doesn't have a DVD, he's basically an unknown. So it's Tucker here. Fravor in the middle and over here is what was at one time classified footage of a tic-tac-shaped UFO. And I'll cut to the chase. Tucker Carlson goes, in your opinion, what was this? Fravor looks right at the camera and goes, whatever this was, was not of this world. Whoa, I about fall out of my chair. <laughs> that led that led that that interview led me to write UFO disclosure, the 70-year-old cover-up exposed. That was the that was the nexus of that whole book, which I cranked out very quickly. The second rung is Luis Elizondo, once again on Tucker Carlson, when asked, are you saying that the United States government has in its possession metallic debris from crashed UFOs? Elizondo hems and haws and makes a big deal about his supposed non-disclosure agreement. But if he was really serious about it, he just would have said, well, Tucker, I cannot confirm or deny that question. Move on, please. He didn't. He kind of squirms a little bit like he's, oh, I'm, I'm such an, oh, I'm in anguish deciding whether I should tell this. It was all planned, all staged, in my opinion. He looks right at the camera and he goes, yes, yes, the United States has, you know, metallic object. So Tucker reiterates the question, are you saying that the United States has metal from crash disc? He says, yes, Tucker. So that's the second rung on the ladder. The third rung is the metal gets tested. Chris Mellon's back on, Tucker Carlson, also CNN, also Glenn Beck and other shows. All these guys went everywhere. They made all the rounds. And I'll get to that in just a second. So Mellon comes on and, and he goes, well, we've tested the metal. There are isotopes that are found in this metal that are not on this earth, that, that are not present here on this earth. Isotopes. Hello. You think that that would, that would wake people up? Not a chance. Not a chance. Snooze time. Hit that snooze alarm. Nothing to see here. Keep moving and shut up. Wear your mask. Social distance. So the fourth rung on the ladder of disclosure, because it's easier to say the disclosure ladder. That's hard for me to say for whatever reason. The disclosure ladder. I have to, I have to say it like it's kind of goofy sounding. The disclosure ladder. So the fourth rung on the ladder is the United States government admits that unidentified aerial phenomenon is real, UAP. They're very clever. They change it from UFOs because that has a negative connotation. And if you believe in UFOs, you're a tinfoil hat wearing type of person. I wear mine proudly. Thank you. But see, but UAPs, come on in. The water's great. Come in the deep end of the pool. So so they that's the fourth rung on the ladder. The United States government says we've got, you know, UAPs are real. The fifth rung, which just blew me away, was the Pentagon and the United States government admits, get this, that they have off-world vehicles 
not made on this earth. Now, you, surely, surely you would think that the American people would, would just, you know, storm the Bastille. <laughs> and we what's going on. Not a flipping chance. Flatline. I mean, I'm like jumping up and down. I can't even believe when I'm, when I'm <laughs> watching, right? I, I can't even believe this, this is going on. So the sixth rung on the disclosure ladder is Commander David Fravor back on Tucker Carlson and says, when I approached the tic-tac-shaped UFO, it jammed my radar. That's an active war. That's an active war. So this is what's interesting. Let's go back to the first run with Commander David Fravor. Who calls up Tucker Carlson's producer on the phone and goes, hey, Tuck, I got a prop here. I might as well use it, right? Tuck, we, we got this guy. His name is Commander David Fravor. He's Tucker's producer. Well, does he have a book or a DVD? No, he has none of those things, but we want him on your show next week. Next Friday, Tucker. Ham haw, ham haw. Oh, no. He will be on, trust me. And so he's on. Who's got the power to do that? Who's got the power to pick up the phone and get someone like Commander David Favor? We are looking at, we are witnessing a managed agenda that is being rolled out deliberately, strategically, step by step, line by line, precept by precept, brick by brick. That's what's going on. It does seem like a societal engineering. They're slowly preparing us for something. They're putting it in the backdrop, just a just background feed that inevitably we will soon realize. I think we're gonna come face to face with it sooner than later. Yeah, it, it's it's I would say the way the way it's 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 fast tracked. And the reason why it's fast tracked and the reason why they choose Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson's audience is mostly conservative Christian. I mean, that that's a fair assessment of Tucker's audience. So they figure that they were afraid from everything I've read during the Roswell crash, knowing what happened in the War of the Worlds, that the biggest pushback would be conservative Christians. They would start freaking out, right? So they rolled out Tucker Carlson, flatline, absolutely flatline. I mean, no, there's not a ripple. Nobody's saying anything. Now, my, now granted, I, I, get, I get some emails. I... I had, for instance, a, a guy at a church call me up and wants me to speak at the church this summer. Got about 500 people there. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm totally into it. On my show, we discuss it every day. UFO update after, after the break. We always have a UFO update. I encourage people to send me photographs, testimonies, whatever. And sometimes these people come on the show. This is the coming great deception. This is the ultimate paradigm shift. This changes everything when they show up. And I believe it was prophesied thousands of years ago, where it says in the, in the narrative, the prophetic narrative, that men will faint from fear of what is coming upon the earth. Well, what does that mean? What, what do you mean what is coming upon? Something is coming upon the earth. It, it will be so overwhelming that some men will faint from fear. And when you talk to people about their encounters, people are usually terrified when they have an encounter, usually. It seems to, you know, you, you mentioned that, obviously, you know, religion, you know, where, wherever you fall on, on whether or not you're a believer or whatnot, it is one of the biggest driving political and social forces in the world today. I mean, it, it always has been to a certain extent, though, but certainly there's a danger of suddenly thrusting upon 70% of the population of the world that suddenly they come to realize that what they've been taught and ethos is suddenly untrue or perhaps was put to them in a certain light to where they were led to believe one thing when the truth was you know it's kind of skin deep filtered through a certain belief yeah certainly well again you know prophecy tells us that even the elect would be deceived that that were possible so what does that mean that even the elect something is coming that is absolutely unprecedented and i believe this is what it is when they show up 
they will have free energy, which will change the entire globe. They'll also have a little chip that will, they, they'll couch it as a, as a DNA upgrade. And you'll be disease-free for 500 years. You'll live longer. You'll live long, like, you know, three to 500 years. I'm just guessing. Uh, why, how do I know that? Because we took the implants out of a patient from do, the late Dr. Roger Lear. Our team took out the implant. It's in our watches series. We filmed it from start to finish. The guy was taken when he was five years old. He had the implant in him for 40 years. He was 45 years old when we took out the implant. And we're the only the only so-called Christian team that's ever done that. Justin shared a YouTube video with me earlier. You discussed, I think, and I might be mistaken, was that the chip they found in his, was it in his leg by chance? Yeah, the, it was yeah. Right, right below his right kneecap, four inches below. And when we, when we, you know, we, we did all the protocols that Dr. Roger Lear told, x-rays, CAT scans, Gauss meter, stud finder, it's metal, right? Then finally took him to the surgeon and he did a test with his ultrasound machine, found it within a minute, we'll see in two weeks. So the day of the operation, three camera crews are there, Richard Shaw, the director of Watchers, my business partner, he's there, we're, we're talking about all this stuff and there's probably 15 to 20 people in a separate room watching the proceedings on a large HD monitor. And for an hour and 15 minutes, we can't find the implant with the ultrasound. Like it's not there. It's like it's vanished. Now I have a spirit guide, all right? But it's not who you think. I'm being deliberately somewhat crippled. My spirit guide taps me on the shoulder and says, you need to take authority over this and you need to take authority over it right now. So here I am in a room full of people who are gonna think I'm crazy if I say anything, but I really don't care because my spirit guide told me to do this and I'm gonna do it. So I just I just say, this might sound really weird guys, but I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna do it now. Everybody kind of looks at me like, oh God, Marzulli's flipped out. And the prayer was very simple. Father, if there are forces which are cloaking this device, I pray that you would break their power and do it soon. Within two minutes, that object comes in from the back of the screen like this. Just like that. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, what's that? And Dr. Lear goes, that's the implant. And Dr. Patriciana goes, yeah, that's the implant. And then he's taking his the wand and he's tapping it like this, looking at it and putting it back on. Sure enough, it appears again. Picks it up, taps it, looks at it, rubs the glass, puts it back on. He can't figure out, I'm cracking up completely because I know what's just happened. I know exactly what's just happened. Powers that be interceded on our behalf. And the following Two days later, this was on a Saturday, we took the implant out. It was on a Monday, we were at Seal Lab with Dr. Roger Lear, Stephen Coburn, the late Richard Shaw. And, and what's interesting, what's terrifying in some ways, Richard's passed away. It'll be uh, two years two years now, over two years. Dr. Roger Lear, four or five years. It's just amazing. But I took Roger out privately into the hallway at Seal Lab, and I said, Roger, I hope you realize what happened in that operating theater. And he looked at me, his eyes got really big, and he said, oh, I, I, I now believe it's a supernatural. That's my best Roger Lear impersonation. <laughs> That's a, a, there's a supernatural dynamic in the UFO phenomenon. I'm going to go tell Whitley Strieber about it. And it's the last time I ever saw him. He passed away. We were down in Peru. We came back, and he passed away. We were at the funeral, and Whitley was there. So whether or not Roger ever had a chance to tell him, I don't know. But the fact that here was this hardcore man of science doc who witnessed the supernatural in that room. He knew what I believed in. He knew my who my spirit guide was. He knew all that. But he, we used to get into these like, you know, you go, what about the nuns who get pregnant? And he just throws something <laughs> like that at me. I go, well, Roger, that's not a good thing, is it? Oh, right. It's just like... <laughs> 
two go back and forth like this. The guy was just, I miss him. I miss Richard. But what happened in that theater, and when we took the implant out, I believe that that's, again, whoever is doing it has spent an awful lot of time doing this. Awful lot of resources and time. And these things have evolved over the last 30, 40 years. And what we took out was something that was 40 years old. Well, the one that Roger took out prior to that was the new shiny model where you couldn't cut it with a razor razor blade. You have to take it to a laboratory. They cut it open with a laser. And it had double-walled nanotubes in it. High strangeness, I believe it's it will be used as the mark of the beast, which which we probably, you guys know what that is. I don't have to explain it. But I think that's what it is. And it will change your DNA. It will change your DNA. You'll take this, and you'll no longer be a human being as you, as you, as we know it. That's conjecture. But it's on ancient prophecy, and it's based on in-the-field research. L.A., I'm just thinking back earlier when you were taking us through the levels on the ladder of disclosure and just thinking about some of the ufology pioneers. If just one of those things happened 50 years ago, everybody would be losing their mind. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're just, we're getting bombarded here in these recent years and everybody's just, you know, mouth open, drool coming out of their mouth, you know? I know, it's just, I mean, I'm telling you, it just, it drives me batty. And then there was a a film by some guys, and, you know, I'm not going to start disparaging him and stuff, but, you know, they were trying to say that Roswell was a weather balloon. And it's like, you know, I, I held their feet to the fire and I said, excuse me, with all due respect, did you ever talk to Jesse Marcel Jr.? Well, no, we didn't do that. Well, He's about as close as you can get to it because his dad was the one that, you know, they, they got the cover-up story that was a weather balloon. It was an absolute insult to Jesse Marcel Sr.'s intelligence as the intelligence officer. He knew exactly what a weather balloon was. And to wake his wife up at 2.30 in the morning with the box of debris that Marcel Jr. saw, and that's what he talked, you know, is completely and utterly disingenuous. But our second witness was a man by the name of Colonel Hill. It was second-hand witness testimony, but this couple, so they work with this guy, end of life. And he told them about a month before he passed away that he was flown into Roswell because he was an intelligence officer. Uh, an intelligence officer, he was also an interrogator in World War II. So they flew him in from Dallas-Fort Worth out to someplace in New Mexico. And, you know, he he saw the being. He tried to communicate with it and couldn't. And he comes on the record, or the witnesses come on the record, and they asked him, well, where did the records go? He said, right, Pat. And we've heard that over and over and over again from other witnesses. Everything went to right, Pat. Heck, I talked to a security guard who's, who was working at right, Pat. And they just told me, you know, there is hangar 18 whatever you want to call it's there and it's always guarded and the windows are blacked out and because this person was a security guy they saw stuff so i know this is kind of a strange aside have you have you by chance kept up with uh i think his name was bob lazar (laughs) i was always curious what you thought anytime i watched i used to sit there and think like you know i kind of i kind of wonder if he thinks you know there's actually any truth to mr lazar's story he seems legitimate he seems very much a, a character that he didn't necessarily seek the spotlight and the after effects were worse than anything you could have gained from it i talked to Lazar one-on-one at the Little Alien years ago, I think it's circa 1995, when all this was breaking loose. There was a little UFO conference there, Norio Hayakawa and Gary Schultz, and I attended that, and it was a very, there's probably maybe 30, 40 people there maximum. You know, Lazar showed up, and I got to talk to him, and I just said, I've always believed you. I've always, because I've had the video, I've always believed your story. Fast forward to 2019, Steve Quell's conference, George Knapp is there. And I had, I, George and I walked to a restaurant together and I chatted him up. I just said, I want you to know that I've always believed in Bob Lazar's story, always. 
Always believed it, never never doubted it for a second. So here we've got Lazar talking about the sports model that he saw hovering. And then fast forward to last year, 2020, all oh, the United States government has in its possession off-world vehicles not made on this earth. Bingo! That, you know, exonerates Lazar completely, 100%, unless they're both lying, and I don't think that they are. They're prepping us. They're prepping us. Not Lazar. Lazar was a whistleblower, but they're prepping us for what is coming. Oh, and it's coming. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. I honestly believe that the last 10 years, they finally have had the tools necessary to start properly coaching and subliminally uh, telling the modern world about this. And I, I think more than anything else, social media and everything else is, has helped to socially engineer a culture throughout the world and the society at large that finally, you know, can be molded to the point where they can accept what's coming. Well, and the question is, is it malevolent or benevolent? Is it, is it all, and all my research all of my research points to the latter it is utterly malevolent in every possible way it seems more than now than ever we're in a divisive society we're kept isolated we're not able to communicate uniformly as a cohesive society so of course i, I really feel that it's a divide and conquer situation as long as we can keep people divided and they can't have a unified front of course it's easier to conquer and it seems pretty logical to me so as terrifying as that is. We're being set up on a global level. We are. We're being set up. And again, I've, I've coined the phrase the coming great deception. And in my opinion, that's what this is. And it will it will change everything. It will change life as we know it on this planet. And not for the better, in my opinion. Although it will appear at first that everything is good. You just brought up your research, Ellie. A lot of your research is uh, centered around the Nephilim. It reveals uh, evidence of a potential cover-up of the remains of a Nephilim. So in your opinion, if you're talking to someone who's a skeptic, what is the first thing you piece of best evidence you point to to the existence of the nephilim oh my gosh how many hours do you have <laughs> where to start let's what what henry what state do you live in south carolina yeah we're both in south carolina it's it's an odd occurrence how we ended up meeting okay so right near there is a mound they call monk's mound cahokia it's right outside uh, lewis quite familiar with it so the archaeologists would have us believe that native americans constructed Cahokia using digging sticks, clamshell hose, using primitive hose, and it took them 300 years to build. Well, not so fast, so some new, new evidence shows that Cahokia was built 
in less than 20 years. So that's the first problem. The second problem is there's a 40 acre plaza that's pretty much dead level. So how do you do that? How do you do that in antiquity? Monk's Mound is approximately, give you an idea, it's the largest mound in the United States. It's about 450,000 tons. So what does that mean to you and me? Let's go to Ohio. There's a place called Fort Ancient. You know, people just make up these names. No one knows what they called it. Cahokia was not called Cahokia and Fort Ancient was not called Fort Ancient. So these are misnomers. But Fort Fort Ancient is 3.5 miles of continuous walls. Some of the walls are 20 to 30 feet high, 50, 60 feet wide. All right. There are 66 gates. It's aligned the spring equinox to the serpent Hydra, 66 gates. So it's got 3.5 miles of continuous walls. So if you were to deconstruct those walls, what do you think that looks like in dump truck? If you were to deconstruct the 3.5 miles of earthen walls, you have dump trucks end to end, bumper to bumper for 200 miles. And we're supposed to believe that Native Americans who were hunter-gatherers had the resources with clamshell hoes, digging sticks, to build these things? How was the dirt compact? How was the dirt carried? Who carried it and when and how long did it take them? And then, just like the Hokia, why did they abandon the site? Why go through all this trouble to and then abandon the site? And guess what? We see the same type structures all over Europe, the Middle East. We see the same type of structures down in Peru, where this civilization rises up out of nowhere, and then it's abandoned. And archaeologists always have the same, well, it must have been climate change where they... Uh, uh, exhausted their resources and so they abandoned the site because of climate change. Yeah, that's what it was. Climate change. Hello. And they all they all just parrot the same nonsensical thing. You have no idea of why and how that site was abandoned. Quit pulling our chains. We're not believing this crap anymore because that's all it is, a bunch of hooey. He's got to give us. And that's the danger because science, a lot of the, especially archaeology, it's a very tight-knit, very close-knit, very, tight-knit, very, tight-knit. very protected, I mean, protected group. Anyone that deviates from it is automatically excommunicated and yep. does marked as a purveyor of lies. Yep. 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 And yet, look, I've gone toe-to-toe with archaeologists and I, and I, I look at them and I go, here's, here's another one for you. I mean, I could talk about this all night, literally. I've made seven films on this, written 13 books, made seven films. I'm a trail of a Nephilim. Number seven, Lost Civilizations, will be out probably in the next couple of weeks. All right. When you go to the octagon now, which is in Ohio, it's an unequal octagon. I get it. If you're going to make an octagon all equal size, that's one thing. But the sides are so long and it encompasses about 42 or 50 acres. We'll round it up to 50 acres. So the octagon encompasses 50 acres. Imagine that. How is it laid out? And it's an array regular octagon. Two of the sides are different. How do you check your work when it's encompassing 50 acres? How can you possibly check your work? Unless you're in the air, then you can check your work. Well, you know, they don't have ladders tall enough or observation towers. So the octagon mound is built on an 18 and a half year lunar site. So this was my question to the archaeologist. How did Native Americans know about the 18 and a half year Metonic site? How did they figure that out? They have no idea. They just said, well, they did They did it, so they must have had knowledge of it. Well, you're not You're not answering me. Because and then you go back 4,000 years when the octagon was built, in order for any culture to figure that out. First of all, you're looking at the moon, you're going, well, I know something's up here. The moon seems to be waxing and waning, you know, and sometimes it comes up and it looks different. Maybe we should track it and see if there's a cycle. Okay, that's a great idea. Now, we have no idea how many years it is. We have no idea where we're coming in on the cycle. Are we entering year two? You're 17, you're eight, we have no idea. So we, all we've got is some sticks and some, you know, some some flint knives 4,000 years ago. And 
we plant the sticks in the ground. So we have two sticks and we sight where the moon is. We make a little notch on the stick. We got some deer hide over here. We're going to crunch to that. Night number two, we go out, make another notch on the stick. Night number three, we so we do this for about, you know, 20 days. We have no idea what's going on, but we, we see that it's rising over on this stick and setting over on this other stick. So, you know, we've got the stick separated with two different points. We're making little notches. Well, after 20 days, this five-day rainstorm comes in and washes everything out. We can't see the moon. So now what? How do you track an 18 and a half year lunar cycle, the Metonic cycle? The Book of Enoch, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, tells us that a fallen angel by the name of Sariel handed all this information to mankind thousands of years ago. So what are you going to believe? If there's a supernatural world and the Book of Enoch's telling us this guy over here just gave it to human beings, and I'll tell you why. Because all this, the mathematics, the engineering, the knowledge of the equinoxes, the solstices, the lunar precession of 18 and a half years, advanced engineering, advanced building techniques, it all comes out of nowhere. There is no pre-existing culture. All of a sudden, it's just poof, and there it is, intact, in toto, and no one, I, no one has any idea of where it comes from. It just falls out of the sky, literally. And the unfortunate part is, as with Native Americans, they did not have a written language that could be completely followed throughout time. So we're probably dealing with an oral tradition that was passed on of these events that unfortunately, you know, as we had groups from Europe coming over and does a disease wipe them out. There is historical discussions of beginning exploration of the eastern coast where they used to could see wooden cities for miles with lights. And then, of course, the addition of the disease wiped them out. You've literally wiped out generations of these stories. We don't have it anymore. We've literally lost a chunk of history that we can't trace because there was no written account of it. Well, Chief Joseph Riverwind, that's why we have him on the film, because he talks about the oral tradition. And tribe after tribe after tribe has kept much of their oral tradition intact. And when asked about these sites, let's say the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio, they'll look right at you and tell you, we didn't do it. It's here when we got here. We didn't build this. It was here when we got here. So who are we going to believe? And this is before the white man ever came to that site. The Shawnee knew about this, the Great Serpent Mound. Chief Wallace of the Shawnee says, you know, we knew about it. We knew it was there. We revered it on some level, but we didn't build it. It was here. Just like when settlers, the white settlers came into Ohio and they see the Great Circle Mound, the Great Octagon Mound, and these other mound works, they go, well, who built this? And Native Americans, First Nation people go, we don't know. It was here when we got here. So we hear this over and over and over. So who do we believe? I'm, I'm sticking with the Native American First Nation people. And you get a little bit of that peppering of that otherworldliness. You know, I think the Cherokee have the, and I, I may be butchering this, but I think they refer to them as the moon people, in which were a group Correct. of people that helped them. Correct. And then you have the Anasazi, and I, I can't even begin to pronounce the, the red-headed giants. But it's just interesting. We had all of these stories, and we have evidence that quickly gets buried or discarded. Yep. I want to ask you, Ellie, well, first, I think this rift is going to continue between academia and people like yourself when they insist on the complete separation of the supernatural or spirituality when investigating these cultures. What I want to ask is, do you think that's just a dogmatic belief in science, or is it? are they aware? and intentionally suppressing that information it depends on who you talk to most most of these guys who were tenured who are professors are are ardent darwinists i mean they believe that they've swallowed the kool-aid I've, I've talked with these people they are ardent darwinists and when asked i remember one archaeologist i won't tell you where where he was he was at 
that he was a curator of a museum out in the middle of nowhere. And I said, I said, you don't believe in anything supernatural, do you? And he goes, well, I believe in the spiritual. And then he told me a story about lights on the mounds and all this other stuff. But all these guys are trained. And step number one, there is no supernatural. Step number two, it's all evolution. It's all the Darwinian theory. That's what it is. And if you don't kowtow and hold to those paradigms, well, good luck in trying to find a job. Or like me, you know, we, we can't find a, a, a lab at this at this moment that will test our DNA because at the moment they hear Peruvian mummies or Marzulli, uh, uh, you know, that's called discrimination last time I checked because they, they don't like the science. They don't like the results that we came up with. When our team went down to Peru, we had 18 different skulls, nine from one museum, nine from another. We had strictest protocols. And Mondo Gonzalez, our lead archaeologist, and myself, we did the extraction on these 18 skulls. And we sequenced them. We had we took to different labs, and it came up the baby mummy skull, which we unwrapped, fresh DNA, U2E1, that's Eastern Europe. That rewrites history alone. But many of the skulls, out of the 58 samples, I believe 28 of them sequenced, many of them showed a European slash Middle Eastern origin. And we've had carbon-14 dating, which is about 3,500 years ago. It all fits the timeline. It fits a hypothesis perfectly, but they don't want to hear that. Oh, it's contaminated. It's contaminated. Well, if it was contaminated, why wasn't my DNA found? Why didn't we get nuclear DNA? I mean, they're, all they do is argue and they throw this, it's contaminated. It's contaminated. Well, wait a minute, pal. That's just one thing. That's the DNA on the elongated skulls. But what about the morphological differences that we find in the elongation of these skulls in Peru that, that cannot be the result of cranial deformation, cradle headboarding, where they bind the head of a child? It can't possibly be that. Our archaeologist and anthropologist on the team, Rick Woodward, was the one, we sent him all the samples that we had, photographs and plaster casts that Joe Taylor from the Mount Blanco Museum did all those plaster casts. So we sent them all to Rick Woodward. And sure enough, Rick goes, look at the position of the foramen magnum. It's all the way to the posterior of the skull. So I'm going to use a prop here. A normal human skull would be right here. This is the spine. It would attach to the skull like this. So you've got you've got a nice balance. The paraca skulls, the foramen magnum is all the way in the back. And you can see that that just doesn't work unless you had a much longer neck. The Anakim in Hebrew means long neck. Could we be looking at one of the Nephilim tribes? Possibly. So we know that the foramen magnum is pushed all the way to the posterior. In other words, it's not in the center of a skull where it should be. It's moved. And you can't move the foramen magnum through cranial deformation. It's placed in utero when the child is in the mother's womb. You can cradle headboard things you want, but you can't move it from here to here. It's in the center. Then you've got the orbits of the eyes, which are 30% larger than a human being. 30% larger. The pupillary distance should be 65 millimeter. In a normal human, these are 42. So you've got morphological differences. You've got, there should be a sagittal suture, parietal suture, which goes from the frontal plate all the way back to the occipital plate. It's not there. It doesn't exist. There's not even a vestige of the suture. You've got this massive jawbone. You've got orbits that are 30% larger. Pupillary distance, which is shorter. The thing probably could see in the dark. The foramen magnum in a completely different location. And the elongation. In episode six, DNA, the final results, we have medical doctors, surgeons, researchers, archaeologists, anthropologists, and other people come on the record and look right at the camera and go, this is another species. This is something genetic. This is a genetic anomaly that we're looking at. Talking about skulls that are not appearing once or twice, you're talking about skulls that appear multiple times 
in locations scattered that quite simply you can't have these genetic lines that could possibly continue on. I mean, obviously, even in civilization back 3,500, 4,000 years ago, these genetic abnormalities wouldn't have survived without modern medicine, even if modern medicine could have taken care of them. So what other explanation could there be other than that this has to be a separate humanoid species? This is, in my opinion, these are Nephilim, in my opinion. These are some sort of hybrid entity which once roamed the Earth. And interestingly enough, they show up in Paracas, Peru, about 3,500 years ago, which is right in the timeline when that whole dispersion happened when Joshua and Caleb go into what's known as the Promised Land, and all these Nephilim tribes are there. And people don't understand what happened, but that's that's what happened. What's interesting is you have a spontaneous, sudden evolution of weaponry and tactics amongst groups that went from sporadic fighting to very engineered, direct tactics, where we suddenly see this development of ability to wage wars and to develop advanced weapons and items that seemed for much of human history to be very absent. We were barely chipping at stone, and then suddenly we have a mastery of iron and other things. Well, again, it's coming from somewhere. The knowledge is falling out of the sky, literally. And the Book of Enoch tells us this, that the Book of Enoch tells us that certain fallen angels came down and gave this information to mankind. I mean, that's what they did. Why is it so hard for people to get their heads around that? And then everything just explodes from there. When you go, we show this in the in latest film, Episode 7, Lost Civilizations. We show a place called Corral, Peru. It is literally the oldest city in the Americas. It's about 5,000 years old. It rises up out of nowhere. There is no pre-existing culture. It just goes, poof, here we are. Level plaza, pyramid, advanced mathematics, knowledge of the solstices, knowledge of the equinoxes, knowledge of the metonic cycle, building techniques, engineering techniques. I mean, all this is just there. You know, it, they, it's just, just there. And guess what? There's no fortifications. They're not afraid. They're not afraid of being raided. No weapons found. Come on, guys. What are we looking at? And then just disappears. I mean, the closest thing that we get to it is thousands of years later in Teotihuacan, Mexico, where we see the Great Pyramid of the Sun, Pyramid of Mood, the plaza, and the temple to Quetzalcoatl. It's the same guys. When I was at Teotihuacan, I had altitude sickness because it's 5,000 feet. I had Montezuma's revenge. I was thir- about 30, 35 pounds heavier than I am now. So I was out of shape. I was sick, running a fever, whole deal. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't understand what I was looking at until after I came back and started looking at the pictures. Then I could kick myself because I spent five hours there because we had to get back. We were filming Watchers 6, which we won an award for. So Richard Shaw is with Jaime Masai on downloading all this ufo footage and i've got the afternoon off i take our driver and i go take me out with tlt wakan so if richard had been there we would have filmed stuff but i had my camera so I'm, I'm taking lots of stills and some some video but not much i didn't know i didn't know what it was and i had already been to peru 2013 so i'm looking at this and i'm, I'm not i don't have it deciphered yet I'm, I'm in the learning process you know later on i just went oh my gosh i mean i would love to go back to teotihuacan but you know mexico is mexico and the drug lords and the kidnappings and it's not safe some parts are some parts aren't mexico city if you got an armed escort yeah because you know they look at guys like me and they, you know they see dollar signs we'll just kidnap them and that's it unfortunately now that's not for everything and i'm painting with a very broad brush here because I have friends that go down 
to certain parks in Mexico. It's just beautiful. A lot of expats are there. I get it. It's a different era than what it was 30, 20, 30 years ago. While we're touching on uh, ancient cultures, LA, the past is littered with flood stories and tales of giants appear in all ancient cultures, essentially. So with the recent discoveries in Greenland, with the receding glaciers, revealing these giant impact craters dating to about the same time as some of these stories say, it seems like there's maybe some concrete evidence that the scientists would like to say to point to these stories maybe having some merit. I say this in my films, there is a hidden history which has been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. We don't know our origin. And we can either believe in the biblical narrative that God spoke everything into existence, that God being Jesus, because that's what it says. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing that was made that was made. That all things were made by him and for him. He is before all things, and he holds all things together. So we start putting all that together, and we realize, and I don't understand, I don't pretend to understand it, but you know, we're all sitting here in these little biological bodysuits, and they work pretty good. You know, they're, I mean, some people are not as fortunate, and they're born with maladies, and I get all that, and that's tragic. You know, all three of us here, we're, we look like we're in pretty decent health. I'm 70 years old. I have a lot of longevity in my family. I could go in over 20 years. We'll see. But you're breathing, I'm breathing. Your eyes are blinking by themselves. Your heart is pounding. You're not telling it what to do. How, where, who created that muscle? Well, we're going to need a pumping system here because we got this stuff called blood. What the heck is blood? I don't know, but we're going to need it because somehow that's got to do the oxygen thing and we're not going to need, I'll tell you later. So you start deconstructing the human eye and speech and hearing and where does consciousness reside henry where are you right now where does henry go when he goes to sleep where does henry reside where does henry's consciousness not in the brain that's the little guy up there going hi i'm henry not there so where do you reside henry justin where are you where do you reside how does all that work you know what who are you you're not your mind you know your mind's just your goofy computer that tells you you know there's a girl in a short skirt i'm not married i get to look these are questions i ask myself daily (laughs) (laughs) So it's like we are fearfully and wonderfully created. When you look at the, I just love these guys, these evolutionists like Dr. Leakey. I'm standing here in the Olivier Gorge. I'm looking at 40, 50 million years. Back, back, back we go. And we see here this tooth. We think this tooth might have been from the very first human being on the planet. It's like you just want to just start screaming. It's like, you know, Piltdown Man. You guys have no flipping clue as to who made this where we are in it, if the universe, if the, if the United States of America is analogous to the entire universe, is planet Earth in Walla Walla, Dallas, New York, Los Angeles? <laughs> we don't know. We have no flipping idea where we are, what this is, and who made it. None. Not a stinking clue. Are we alone in the universe? Is the universe plasma? Is the universe a holographic universe? It might be. We don't know. We don't know what this is. It's hysterical. Where does the heart come from? Why does this muscle just go to-dunk, to-dunk? I mean, it's just like, where, where did that come from? The million dollar like, questions. Yeah, I mean, certainly <laughs> go. Well, as an evolutionist, I realize that, you know, the heart is certainly somewhat enigmatic, but obviously it's there, so it must have evolved over billions of years. Sorry, sorry. So we with this heart muscle just kind of pumping over there. I'm just a heart. I'm here, I'm pumping. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, but I'm a pumping away. And then we've got this whole intricate system of the lungs and the blood and the vessels and the arteries. It's just like, no, no, no. This is a creation, and it's it's a really good creation. And look, everything moves. I can talk to you right now. 
and look silly while I'm moving my hands. I might have to think, oh, move your right hand. Oh, move your right hand quicker than the left hand. Nope, nope. I mean, how do I do that? And that doesn't even include all the external sources that have to be perfect for us to live to. Believable. The Darwinists, they don't believe in a God. But yet when you when Ben Stein holds Richard Dawkins to his feet to the fire, well, where did the first self-replicating molecule come from? We have no idea. No one does. Well, you're right. You have no idea where the first self-replicating molecule came from. But you're going to tell us all about evolution because that's what you got. Because you don't like God and you're afraid that this, the God, and he hates the God of the Old Testament because they're wrathful, vengeful, you know, maniacal God of the Old Testament. Oh my God. That's because he doesn't understand what's going on. He's never understood about the Nephilim and that the judgment that comes is because of Genesis 3.15 where there's a seed war. Something, and this is a three-hour conversation, guys. You don't have to have me back. We're going to let you get out of here. Like, we do not want to, we don't want Mr. Nori on our doorsteps here. <laughs> late for his show. We'd love to have you back. And what do you have on the horizon? Where can folks find you? Uh, LAMarzuli.net, LAMarzuli.net. You can rent all of the videos by going to streaming.LAMarzuli.net. And episode seven is coming out, Lost Civilizations. People who have screened it said it's my best film so far. Shameless plug. <laughs> but uh, I would like to think I'm getting better as an editor, as a director. I'm working on redoing my very first film, the whole UFO phenomenon. And I'm actually, I'm probably two weeks away from reprinting that. And it's all changed. It's all changed. <laughs> I've done I've done nine films and I'm going back and I'm, I'm kicking butt and taking names and making it better. So LA, it's been great talking to you. We'll have you back when we have less time constraints because we can talk to you all night. Sounds good. Take care, guys. All right. Bye-bye, man. Take care. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>